This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Welcome. And of course, the big news last week was the trial of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who was found guilty of second-degree and third-degree murder and manslaughter. And we will get to that conversation. But today, we want to focus on the rising assaults and harassment of Asian Americans with our guest, Linda Chang, a former journalist, a China correspondent, and Asian history scholar. Welcome, Linda. Hello, Jerry. Thanks for having me on. Sure. So it was interesting. I seen the numbers since the pandemic. There's been 3,800 incidents of violence and harassment against Asian Americans, Americans that's been reported since the start of the COVID and, uh, pandemic. Um, do you see a correlation between this happening and the COVID outbreak and kind of what the former administration was saying about this, that it all originated in China? And, and, and is it, you see a relationship with that? I do. I do. And um, I wanted to suspend judgment just to be, I don't know, a devil's advocate because I live in a state with a lot of, I mean, I live, I live in a very blue state and I just want to kind of offer an alternative, you know, an alternative point of view. And I've worked in China as well. So I can kind of see where their propaganda was at play. But I do think that um, the tensions have been simmering. Uh, suspicion of the Asian population in the United States is kind of something that unfortunately has gone hand in hand with American history. And with the coronavirus, I think it just kind of, uh, you know, it, it's a global pandemic. It's it's affected people everywhere. And so it just seemed easy and handy to scapegoat Asians. And then when you have the commander in chief kind of glibly, you know, calling it the, the Chinese virus and the Kung flu, I think it's all, you know, it stokes the fires of racism. We know a lot about slavery and the brutality of that. And then we know a lot about the history of Native Americans and the extermination of them and the taking of their lands. But most people don't think about Asian Americans as being, you know, targeted and harassed and persecuted. But you have a master's degree in Asian studies. And, you know, Asians have been persecuted in this country for a long time. And it was 1850s. They were coming over, working on the railroads, and people were giving them a hard time because they felt they were taking their jobs. But, you know, this has kind of opened our eyes. There were Supreme Court rulings. There were lynchings. There were massacres. You know, this happened before in the 1900s. There was a San Francisco plague that was blamed on Asians and particularly Chinese because the first victim was a Chinese immigrant. And a lot of this violence is instigated because of fears uh, among white people that Asians would take their jobs. And you had a very interesting story when you were at the Detroit News about that. Tell us about it. I was um, an intern, an editorial intern at the Detroit Free Press uh, in 1987. And that was like a real seminal year in my personal and professional development. And I pitched a story about Lily Chin, who was a widow and an immigrant from China, but more specifically, people's interest in her was the fact that she was the mother of a young man named Vincent Chin, who at the age of 28 and right after his bachelor party, got pummeled to death with a baseball bat by two 
uh, white men who were recently laid off from their jobs at auto plants in Detroit and mistook him for being Japanese and started a verbal altercation during which they kind of uh, blamed the uh, decline of America's auto industry and the loss of their jobs on him. So I wanted to tell the tale of Mrs. Chin. Gosh, it was such a gut-wrenching tale. I wanted to let her freely express herself in her own language and to tell, I guess, the, ta the tale of her disappointment in the justice system because those two men never served a single day mm. in jail, never served mm. a single day behind bars. Mm. Mm. But that was basically because they felt or they were saying during this time that, you know, Asians were coming over and taking the auto auto industry jobs. Is that right? Stealing, um, stealing, uh, what, conducting industrial espionage, taking it back to Japan, opening up plants in Detroit to build Japanese cars, however you define it, just basically uh, encroaching in, in uh, what they perceive to be their, their territory in Motown. And this happened, I mean, this has happened in history. As I said, in the 1850s, it was railroad jobs. Uh, later on, after Vietnam, it was the shrimpers in Texas, and they mm -hmm. had their boats burned by people because they felt that they were taking their jobs there. You grew up, uh, your parents grew up in China, came over here in, as immigrants. Tell us a little bit about your family history. May I answer your other question about why we don't hear that much about Asian Americans? Oh, sure, sure. Okay. Um, I wanted to point out, and and. Maybe it's a little-known fact, but um, one of the reasons why maybe the general population isn't so familiar with the idea of Asian Americans being um, persecuted or targeted is because up until the 1960s, and I would say the middle of the 1960s, um, Asian Americans only made up, well, they made up less than 1% of the general population in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And that population was mainly on the West Coast here. You know, because of the the historic employment, you know, trends with the railroads and the golden fields and all that. So um, our family was one of those that, um, I guess, benefited from the opening up of or, or the loosening up of, of racial quotas. And we were able to uh, reunite with my paternal grandfather, who actually uh, came under false pretenses, used the last name Wong, my last name is actually Chong. He, he um, used someone else's last name, claimed to be the descendant of someone named Wong, and um, came into this country that way. And that phenomenon is called the paper sun phenomenon. And the reason behind that is that, um, well, as you referenced earlier, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act kind of created a cottage industry and forced Chinese people to get really creative with um, their stories about how to get back into the United States or get into the United States. So people would claim that they were the sons of so-and-so, sons of a Mr. Wong. And then when the immigration folks in Angel Island would ask, well, what about your documents? Well, they couldn't necessarily refute anything because um, the fire in San Francisco that was caused by the earthquake in 1890s had in fact destroyed all the federal documents. Hmm. So they took advantage of that kind of loophole. Wow. My grandfather included. So he, he brought us over and um, I wasn't part of that 
of this next wave, but I guess the other significant wave came after the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of refugees coming over from Indochina. And also we've, you know, had throughout history populations of um, Korean Americans, Japanese Americans, um, Indian Indian Americans from, you know, the South Asian uh, region in this country as well. But I would say the significant numbers came, you know, during the middle to late 60s. And what what would you say now the population of the Asian American uh, Asian Americans is right now? Chinese Americans are actually the largest group when you talk about Asian Americans. And then the Filipinos are actually the second largest. But I would say Chinese make up 24% of the Asian origin community groups, 5.6% of the United States overall population. Wow. And your parents came over in what year? 1969. I was a baby. Mm, mm, I just aged mm. myself. <laughs> but you talked a bit about, you were writing an essay, and you talked a little bit about kind of your own personal, what you went through in elementary school, some of the verbal harassment that you want, went through. Talk a little bit about that, growing up Asian in America. I didn't always think it was this great thing. You know, I went through the typical adolescence angst. Um wrestling with my identity and stuff like that and particularly hard to do when uh, you've got a linguistic and cultural barrier with your parents who themselves were traumatized by a you know the immigration experience i live in southern california i grew up in southern california and the dominant population around here tends to be um latino and so they um a lot of times they weren't um very they weren't necessarily welcoming uh, newcomers at all, let alone Chinese newcomers. They didn't know what to think of me, so I got mistaken for all kinds of other races, Thai, uh, Japanese. But I think more than anything, um, it was a resentment of, uh, I don't know, ignorance. Mm-hmm. And you talked about that. You talked about that a little bit in your essay that, you know, even in this latest spate, you had kind of chalked it up initially to people being ignorant and not being hateful. Um, but um, as this has grown, you see it You see it differently now. I do, I do. And, um, you know, when you're talking about, you asked earlier about the percentage of uh, the United States population overall being Asian. Well, the census, the recent census says it's 5.6% of the total American population. So again, I mean, not a huge number, but not insignificant. And so, I think there's a lot of conflation by the general public. They'll look at someone, and it doesn't necessarily justify it if someone did uh, target someone for thinking they were from, say, the country where the coronavirus uh, mm-hmm. you know, originated, mm-hmm. and yet instead they actually are from, say, the Philippines or right. Burma or Korea. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make it right if they guessed the right place, but unfortunately it also means that Asians of other ethnicities are are getting um you know picked on as well right the broad brush and the mm-hmm. um it's kind of interesting you mentioned about the latinos um out there and giving you a hard time it just always fascinates me or maybe troubles me that minority groups will give another minority group a hard time what do you think that is i think some of it is uh economics mm-hmm. i definitely grew up working class uh, i mean we, we were impoverished but we were working class and so when you have working class families next to each other, you often have neighborhoods that are 
residentially mixed. You have people who actually own their homes, mm -hmm. which my parents had to scrimp and save to buy their little modest little bungalow mm -hmm. alongside people who for their whole lives were renters mm -hmm. or maybe Section 8 renters. Mm -hmm. And they wonder how does these people who don't even speak English, you know, manage to have multiple cars in their driveway and, and own their homes. And a lot of it is just the Asian collective mentality produces kids who stay home. They kind of collect their, their money. They pool their resources. Mm -hmm. They're very filial. And they, you know, they're encouraged to pursue higher education so they have higher income jobs. So I think that's that's it, a lot of it at least. Yeah, and there's a resentment. I mean, there's a resentment there and, and a, a feeling that, hey, this is unfair. This, is, uh, this isn't right. So you were talking about your parents and uh, you talked about not, telling them about what's going on right now in this rise and and why is that well they're 86 and i figure there's no good can come out of it mm -hmm. by telling them if i tell them i think it can only alarm them more mm -hmm. they're actually fairly patriotic very proud of being americans but i think this would devastate them because you know they disavowed their chinese citizenship in the 70s and we became u.s citizens and my father was so proud of it mm -hmm. And I'm not sure he would feel the same way anymore. I mean, he, he's so proud of it. He almost goes out of his way to point out to people, well, I'm not from China or that product's from China and it's cheaply made. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. I don't tell them about that. And so I think they've lived through enough trauma in their lives. They've lived through famine and civil war and immigration. They don't need to go. They don't need to know about this. And the best we can do, I think, as their kids is just protect them mm -hmm. and keep them off the streets as much as possible yeah and that's a sad statement right i mean that's uh that's that's kind of sad that you have to and and we see this through the african-american community they always have the talk you know and yeah and um, you know just you know do what you you know when you're in that situation this is what you do so um yourself and and being over there in china and being over in asia how does that kind of um um, make you think about what's going on right now? Well, I know how the media machine in China works. And so it did not come as any surprise to me mm -hmm. when the politicians or the, the, the PR people, the flax in China started to spin the story that, oh no, the coronavirus did not originate here. It originated in Fort Detrick, Maryland. And there was this, mm -hmm. you know, a time when there were these uh, military games that happened there. And in fact, we sent a, a small delegation of Chinese soldiers and they came back sick too, but it actually came out of your country. They developed it in a lab. I, I, I know that was what they kind of um, defaulted to as offering an explanation. Uh, the other thing too is all kinds of suspicion of China and the things they eat, the things they wear, uh, less so now because uh, China's increasingly open. There's not some small hermit kingdom like North Korea, for instance. I think people, there was a lot of talk in the beginning that um, the origins of the coronavirus may have been from mm -hmm. consuming some bat in a wet market in Wuhan. I don't know about that. I don't know that there's been any conclusive evidence about that. I don't, I don't know right, if right, that was right. the cause or that was just kind of anecdotal to, you know, if that is a correlation or causation. Did people who happen to eat bat just get it? Or was it the bat that caused it and then started a mutation? I'm not really sure. But once you start talking about eating these really exotic animals like bats, then the Americans start getting kind of, uh, or not just Americans, but people who find that kind of uh, behavior revolting, shall we say, then they start making other assumptions about 
you being unclean or vulgar right. or untrustworthy. And it's kind of interesting, and and you had mentioned this a little bit in terms of, you know, social media right now. The the information moves so quickly, and things can spread so 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 much. Do you, and when you hear people adopting this, I mean, in America, they, I mean, they they adopt this and and say, yeah, yeah, this this started in uh, Wuhan, and and yeah, they're they're to blame. When you see people adopting this um, rhetoric, um, this this storyline, how do you feel? It makes me sad, but I try to listen to them so they feel heard because there's a lot of frustration out there around the world. Just how did this become a pandemic? Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone, I don't know about you, but I, I never in my lifetime did I expect to have to be going through something of this magnitude. Right. And so I think I talk to people and I try to explain how we need to understand that uh, it'll take some time for all the facts to emerge, but that, you know, as journalists, we're historians on the run, Mm -hmm. but that the reports that we're reading now are just that reports on the run Mm -hmm. and to have some patience, don't jump to conclusions. And, you know, ultimately any Asian who's here is probably not the person who, you know, originated or devised, (laughs) you know, this this, this poison. (laughs) They didn't start it. Yeah, they didn't start it. Yeah, that's very interesting. But you you'd also mentioned a little bit and uh, about my, as a kid, you know, people pulling their eyes back and, and things like that. I can't imagine going through that. Well, that's the kind of thing that contributed to my uh, feelings of self-loathing and, and feeling kind of embarrassed. Um, mm-hmm. It was humiliating. And it took some time for me to figure out that uh, hurt people hurt people and that yeah. kid, kids who do these kinds of things are learning it from somewhere else. Right. That's the scary thing. That's the scary thing. That's really the scary thing. Um, So when you think about this, how do we get out of this? How do we reduce this? How do we address this? What's your thoughts? Okay, I'm really glad you asked about that because uh, I think it's important for people not only to offer what prayers and thoughts when we hear about tragedies, be they the Atlanta shootings at the day spa. I have found that as much as possible, even when you're fearful and anxious, as much as you can feel empowered by doing something, by saying something, I think it's good for your mental health. And it, I think it, it kind of short circuits or at least it makes you feel like you're contributing to um, cutting down the, the cycle a little bit, taking a little bite out of it. And so there's an organization called iHollaback, I-H-O-L-L-A-B-A-C-K.org. And they are offering some online trainings on how to... Uh, combat racism or what to do if you're a bystander mm-hmm. it's like someone who may not be an asian american per se um might learn you know some some possible script they could use in trying to bring down hostilities or whatever but also if you see something say something and if you have the time and if you're inclined i know that volunteers have assembled in in several major cities seattle chicago los angeles san francisco they meet up and they just help to keep the streets safe and they try to escort elderly people who are traveling alone and uh, keep them out of harm's way. And you can also support organizations like Stop AAPI Hate. You can support them by, um, you know, maybe buying merchandise that openly declares your disdain for anti-Asian hate or maybe donating. But they also have some, you know, the website also offers ideas on what you can do. 
That's wonderful. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's because I think, you know, as a listener, you, you need to be told, hey, this is what you as an individual can do about this. And I think that's where it, um, that's where it all begins, right? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I think, too, um, we didn't touch on this, but one of the reasons why Asian American hate crimes tend to be underreported is, well, apart from the fact that they constituted a small population for a long time, a lot of it's a linguistic thing. Um, they feel like they don't want to make any waves. They don't speak good enough English anyway to report it. So we're talking about 3,800 crimes, but it's probably a lot more than that. Sure. The other thing too is a lot of these people work long hours and they don't, they don't even want to take the time out to go to the police station and file a report. Is there a thing, is there a thinking that no one's going to do anything? There is that thinking, unfortunately, and some of it stems from fatalism that's kind of culturally ingrained in in some Asian countries kind of thinking, well, we are, we are foreigners here, aren't we? Or, well, it is better than, you know, being lynched because we found a couple of uh, specks of gold after some people tried to pan here. Yeah, it it is better than what happened, you know, then when we were really newcomers, but it's still unacceptable. Indeed. Indeed. Well, thank you, my dear friend for joining us and uh, fascinating. And thanks for the history and and just some, some great tips on uh, what we as all, all can do as individuals uh, to try to uh, get this down. So all the best to you, my friend. And to you. Thanks. Okay. We're going to bring in uh, our technical producer, Brad baby, the wizard of pods and talk about the Chauvin case this week. And boy, buddy, I cannot remember a case that was watched as close as this or a verdict. I guess that was watched as close as this as the, since the OJ Simpson trial. I mean, eh, I was lucky someone had written to me and said, Hey, take a look. And I was able to watch it live. Were Were you able to see it? It was one of those things that I had on every day, but I, Right. Not necessarily was paying attention to every moment of it because, right, right, so, right. I mean, some days it was just hours and hours of testimony. Yes, 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 yes. But it was a, it was a big thing. And uh, what do you think? What do you think of the verdict? Thank God. It, but it was also one of those things, and this sentiment has been echoed throughout. I certainly wasn't jubilant about it. It was just like, all right, good. You know, that's, yeah. you know, all right, we fixed, all right, we got that one. What, what's next? Come, what's coming up next? Right. You know, and as that's happening, yeah. you know, something is happening. The next one is happening. The, the young lady yes. in, in Ohio. Yes. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the timing of that was um was actually amazing in the sense of you know bad news. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh, and it was interesting to hear um these uh, conservative commentators, uh, guys like um, Tucker Carlson saying, well, the jury was under pressure to make this decision because if they didn't, there would have been rioting throughout America and all that kind of uh, stuff. But this was a split jury: uh, six white, uh, four biracial, two black. And um, usually um, I've, I've noticed in cases when they come back with a pretty quick verdict, then they pretty much know what they what they're doing. I, I the, the testimony throughout, like as as the trial wore on, it seemed like one of those things like there's no way he's going to get acquitted. And the, and the one thing that did it for me was the Irish guy. Uh, I want to say his name was Martin Tobin or Tubin. Mm-hmm. Do you remember his mm-hmm. testimony? And he had the most gripping thing uh, anyone said in the trial. And he Uh pinpointed the moment. You can Uh see George Floyd, his past right there. Uh Uh And uh, he was still kept down on the ground by his neck for another three and a half minutes. 
Yeah, it was interesting because, you know, we've seen this video. Everybody's seen it. It's been played and played. But I picked up the paper the next day and I saw a, a still photo of Chauvin with his knee on Floyd's neck and, and Floyd's face is twisted. And it reminded me of the Emmett Till photo oh, from my the 1950s. Yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was a civil rights photo. Yeah. I mean, this was exactly the same thing that happened 50 years ago. And um, boy, you know, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, there was a lot of people saying um, the impact that it's going to have on police, but I think it's already had an impact. And we talked about that Capitol, uh, Capitol raid where the, you know, the marauders got into the Capitol. And I was asking someone, I think it might have been, um, it might have been um, Kevin um, that, you know, why didn't the police use force? Why didn't they, you know, open fire on these people? And he was saying that um, it was because exactly of this, that they were thinking about what the after effects would be and, and you know, whether they are, they would be on trial, you know, that whole thing. And it's not a bad thing, I don't think. Well, one did. I mean, a, a woman did get shot and killed at, at, at that uprising. I, I shoot if I can remember her name. I want to say it was Babbitt or something to that effect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, she was climbing through the window of that door. And, uh, you know, that officer told her, Ashley, Ashley Babbitt. Yeah, that, that officer, I don't, I don't know his name. He was just uh, exonerated. Like there, there isn't going to be any charges. Mm -hmm. pressed. That was a, a rightful mm -hmm. discharge of a firearm. Mm -hmm. She was told, do not cross that barrier. And the gun was yeah. in her face. And she just thought, eh, mm -hmm. we're, we're coming anyway. This is our house. Mm -hmm. That was their mm -hmm. crazy motto. And, uh, you know, she got shot. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, And then we have the other three officers coming up. So this is an over even in the Minneapolis case. And then we have the woman with the taser. She grabbed the gun instead of the taser, the officer, and, and shot that woman. So, wow, it just keeps going on. And there was just another one last night in Carolina. Uh, a guy was uh, shot leaving the leaving the scene uh, or he was pulling away from I didn't I did not read this literally just happened last night it, yeah, we're taping yeah, this on the uh, yeah. uh, middle of the week here and uh, Elizabeth City shooting uh, North Carolina. Uh, Andrew Brown Jr. Yeah, and I, and I remember talking to, to Gary McElhenney, who's done a lot of our police uh, uh, shows, and he was just saying the need for more training, particularly racial sensitivity training. So, yeah. um, you know, these kind of things happen, and they're horrible, but, um, you know, the only hope is that something good comes out of them, you know, and that's that's the only thing that uh, you can hope in something like this. So Yeah, you know, and it's it's funny you say that, the, the, the racial sensitivity training. I was watching one of the talking heads from CNN last night, uh, and, and they were talking about how cops are, you know, and there's no way to pussyfoot around it. They're afraid of black people. There are cops that are afraid of black men. There are cops yeah. that, that yeah. you know, once in yeah. that presence are going to take a certain stance and, and, and that's going to always lead to trouble. Yeah, and it was, re and you remember when we talked to Phyllis Alexander, which was one of our first episodes, and I asked her, I said, why are not, or why aren't there instances of black officers shooting white people? And she said, because black people are raised in America to give white people the benefit of the doubt. And white people do not give black people that benefit of the doubt. And I thought that was very, um, that was very interesting. And she was talking about the segregation mm -hmm. of America. You know, the white people live on one side of town, black people live on one. But black people are probably more interactive with white people than the other way around. And I think that's what she said is kind of the bottom of the of, of this whole issue is that um, there just not has not been an effort 
by white people to understand black people. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah no, I, I agree. And I, you know, I, I grew up and you, same thing. I, you know, we, I, we grew up in segregated, segregated towns. I mean, uh, Buffalo is, you know, all the sure, black people sure. predominantly lived on the West side and, you know, and, and I grew up in a suburb. I, I went to high school sure. with maybe three people of color. So, you know, so I, I, I know exactly what they're right. talking about when, right. when, when people just live on different sides of town. It, it almost becomes a different world. It, it, well, it is a different world. So, well, hopefully um, all this turmoil will bring us uh, into a better world or, or a closer together world. But, uh, yeah. Again, we were just talking about this. I mean, Rodney King is already yeah. 30 years ago, Jer. Wow. 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 And that, that just kind of reminded me a little bit of the trial of those officers. Those were the six officers who beat him mm -hmm. and they were acquitted. Yeah. And you saw Los Angeles just explode. So um, fortunately, um, that didn't happen here. And um, boy, I just cannot imagine. I could not imagine what America would have been like if this uh, this occurred. So anyway, they always say uh, out of something crappy, something good comes out. So let's hope in, uh, hope in this case it is the is the way. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. We will be back next week with another thrilling episode of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until that time, always remember, read beyond the headlines. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career, covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.